As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast and oh boy, this is an action-packed episode. We are jumping into the deep end today, talking all about the founding of Mormonism and the good possibility that Joseph Smith was spiking the sacramental wine with psychedelic plant medicine, leading to the incredible visionary experiences in the early days of the church. I'll be chatting with amateur historian and ex-Mormon researcher Cody Nikoni. Now, if you've just discovered the podcast and haven't listened to the first two episodes in this season, I highly suggest you go back and listen to those episodes first, or you'll be missing part of the story. This season, we're taking a journey through one branch of my own family tree to explore what happens when a group of people leave the only land they've ever known for the promise of salvation and eternal life in heaven. And while, yes, this is my personal family story, I have no doubt that you'll find threads that feel similar to your own stories, no matter where in the world they originated or what religion they were affiliated with. I hope to go down, in, and through rather than around what is difficult in our collective inherited past and bring those stories to light in a way that just might change not only the past, but also the future. And I hope it just might inspire you to go on a journey of your own ancestral healing. If you do feel inspired to go deeper and you want to support the work that it takes to bring this podcast to life, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earth Tenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. And now I'm honored to share with you my discussion with Cody Nakoni. What makes Mormon beliefs different from kind of, you know, general Christianity. There's there's a lot of similarities, but there's some major differences. What would you say are the main differences? I I think the biggest things that kind of separate Mormons from a lot of other Christian sects is um how they define God um and um kind of they have a very specific take on God um and the kind of heavenly plan. Um, there is a sort of tiered system of heaven, um, which is not entirely unique. There's some other religions that do that, but essentially there's three levels of heaven. And then there is no hell, quote unquote, a fiery place. There's just what they call outer darkness, which is what's for everybody else. Um, and was founded by a teenage boy in upstate New York during the Burndo- in the Burndover district of New, uh, New York during uh, the early 1820s, 
didn't actually become a religion until like the eight, uh, 1830. Um, and I think the thing that makes it most unique is that it, uh, it was ran and operated by a revelatory seer who uh, was trying to bring back like an apostolic version of Christianity that was more Pentecostal, a lot more what we would recognize today as like evangelical. Um, they've very much toned down a lot of that since then, but um, it was its own kind of unique occult Christian thing where you could express yourself in more of a Pentecostal uh, spirit. Um, and then, of course, like you're if I'm right, way, all the drug use. <laughs> yeah, and in that way, you're meaning maybe you know speaking in tongues and speaking in tongues, rolling around on the floor, performing exorcisms, um, uh, casting out devils. A lot of the stuff you would see on like a televangelist when they're <laughs> doing all. It, that's what early Mormon church actually looked like. Um, and Joe, I kind of interpret as more or less a con man. So if it gives some context to the audience who's not familiar with it, I look at Mormonism kind of like the 19th century Scientology. And Joseph Smith was the L. Ron Hubbard of his, of his era. He was writing really compelling Christian fan fiction that he kind of sold in his own uh, twist uh, to his audiences. Um, I think that's probably what makes it the most unique is that it's a, it's a modern Christian religion. Um, and it was kind of, brought out whole cloth by this teenage boy in upstate New York. Okay, so let's get into it. How exactly does a teenage farm boy from upstate New York start a religion and recruit tens of thousands of followers from around the world in a relatively short period of time in the first half of the 1800s? This is what I was hoping Mormon researcher Cody Nikoni could shed some light on for me. Cody wrote the book, The Psychedelic History of Mormonism, Magic, and Drugs, that I just happened to stumble across in my research for this podcast, and it really helped me to put a lot of these pieces about the early church together. I asked him to explain what was going on in New England in terms of religion in the early 19th century. So, like, right, we're, we're kind of entering things right after the founding of the nation, um, we've kind of cast off the last century of witch burnings and uh, a lot of the more superstitious things. So whereas witchcraft was kind of a contentious subject throughout history, and you had to be very careful how you practiced it, um, people in America for probably the first time in history, or in like European history, had the ability to kind of like experiment with what they thought was the occult, so long as they did it within Christian parameters. Um, and that's kind of what the Smith family uh, was birthed out of. Uh, his his parent, Joseph's parents, uh, Joseph Sr. and Lucy Mack, got together in like 18, it's like the, I think 1800 or like right before 1800, um, and then just started having kids. And they were deeply meshed into the like Christian occult scene of New York, which was substantial. Everybody kind of had their own flavor. Everybody was kind of making their own church. Um, very few of which last today. Um, it's the same area. The reason they call it the burned over area in New York is because every so many Christian preachers had been through it, that everybody had been baptized. It was burned over. Like nobody, everybody was Christian. Everybody was practicing their own version of Christianity and like spiritualism uh, kind of came out of this exact same area a generation later. Um, Seventh-day Adventists, um, a lot of the big religions you think of as like American Christian religions 
um, came out of this one place in New York at the around the same time, um, which kind of bespeaks to how how prevalent these like new American religions were at the time. Just not all of them had the staying power that Mormonism turned out to have. Um, and so there were kind of itinerant preachers. There were snake oil salesmen. That's where that term comes from is uh, people leading revivals and selling snake oil, sometimes laced with drugs. <laughs> um, and yeah, so like Joseph grew up in that area. And, and uh, at that time, he was kind of indoctrinated into some pretty deep forms of the occult, as well as some pretty esoteric uh, interpretations of Christianity. While all these new American immigrants were asking themselves questions from like a theological perspective. So like, where did all the Native Americans come from? Um, how does that fit into the Bible if the Bible is literally true? Um, how does uh, God look at uh, these people or that? And Joseph's creation of Mormonism was in many ways an attempt to answer all of those questions in one place. Um, and I think that's, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I rant, but uh, I, I think that's kind of the, um, the milieu that like Mormonism was birthed out of and why it's so unique is he was trying to answer so many questions for so many people that had so many questions. And questions they had. If you've ever taken an American history class in your lifetime, at some point you learned about how early immigrants to the colonies were escaping religious persecution. But what exactly does that mean? What kind of religious beliefs did they have that weren't accepted by the mainstream European religions? Well, Daniel Pistorius, a Mennonite from the Rhine Valley, crossed to Pennsylvania in 1683 aboard what he called a Noah's Ark of Religious Faiths. Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Calvinists, Anabaptists, and Quakers. A wide variety of faiths, mostly leaving homelands that had some kind of national church that was aligned with or headed by the monarchy. Most of the early colonists came in small groups and built villages up and down the Atlantic coast where they could live with others who believed as they did and build their own versions of religious utopia. So early America may have been a melting pot, but the differing religious groups largely kept to themselves. Fast forward 200 years, and the new frontier was the Erie Canal, the first navigable waterway to connect the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes via the Hudson River. Curiously, the canal is located right along that 42nd parallel we talked about in last week's episode, the Empire Building Ley Line the parallel ripe for building new civilizations. But the canal wasn't just a boon to the expanding commercial and agricultural interests, it also transported people and ideas further west than ever before. New religious and utopian movements such as the Oneida community, the spiritualists, the Shakers, and the Mormons all moved westward along the canal route, rapidly descending on port towns and then moving on. This fast-moving wave of spirituality and religious zeal, which converted so many so quickly, prompted observers to refer to the Genesee Valley as the burned-over district, as Cody mentioned. In particular, the Baptist and Methodist faiths gained large numbers of converts and new denominations emerged. The Fox sisters founded spiritualism near Rochester. Evangelist Charles Grandison Finney held a massive religious revival in Rochester, New York, lasting several months, 
from September 1830 to March 1831. These movements were all contemporary to the time that Mormonism was picking up steam in the same area. But going back a bit to one of the groups that was pioneering ideas in this area, we find a group curiously similar to some of the early Mormon traditions. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is the, the cult in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Um, there were a group of German monks that came from Germany uh, because their practices were too radical um, or their philosophies. Uh, they came to America, specifically Pennsylvania, to practice their faith like unencumbered. Um, and within a few generations built um, what many Mormons would recognize as Mormon tropes. So they called themselves the Brotherhood of Zion. They were very temple centric. Um, they practiced a form of aestheticism that uh, included like dietary restrictions and they believed in a three-tiered heaven. They were, um, uh, this all kind of culminated in these temple rituals uh, which I believe kind of mirrored the early days of Mormonism, where they were um, taking initiates into the upper rooms of the temple and for like upwards of 30 days, putting them through a regimen of intense psychedelics every single day, where like at, towards the end of it, the last week of it, you're just gacked out seeing angels and talking to God and you're given a new name and he puts magic stones in your body and replaces some of your organs, your teeth and hair fall out and are regrown. And you're, you go through what we would today call a classic shamanic dissolution where you're, you're, you're being rebuilt as a new celestial being. Um, all tropes that would kind of strike with Mormons today, but uh, this is like a hundred years before Mormons were around. Um, and this is in Pennsylvania, just a stone's throw from the Whitmer house where the Whitmers were one of the founding uh, families of Mormonism. Um, and so this was like every, everybody that had a group like Ephrata at that time that was operating. And if you knew what you were looking for, could tell what they offered. Um, but if not, it just seemed like you were taking a magic sacrament. And I talked to God, that's all I really care about. Um, <laughs> so the... Another thing that we have to contextualize is like the um, mindset people had towards drugs at the time was very, they didn't have the war on drugs or a prohibition or any of that stuff. It was just like part of everything else. So like if a, if a prophet could give you a sacrament and you an hour later saw God, a lot of people didn't really concern themselves with what actually made that happen. You know what I mean? They just know that I went to this guy. He has prophetic powers. He got me to see God. Um, and so that's, I think, a huge part of the burned over district I was talking about is you have all these preachers who have all these different skill sets, and a lot of them are into mesmerism and early forms of hypnotism and drugs. And when you combine it all together, you have very charismatic people who can lead a lot of people in a visionary experience. Mesmerism, hypnotism, drugs. This was the environment Joseph Smith Jr., aka the future founder of the Mormon Church, grew up in. And look, I can't be too judgmental here. When you get into the details, a lot of it isn't all that different from some of the spiritual beliefs we're practicing today. It can be easy to mock early 1800s spirituality with its seances and dramatic casting out of evil spirits. But let's look at a few of the leaders of these movements who were active at the same time early Mormonism was getting started. The Fox sisters... Maggie, Kate, and Leah were teenage girls living in Rochester, New York, in a house that the locals considered to be haunted. 
They convinced their family and neighbors that they were communicating with spirits in the house and were invited to a party at another neighbor's house to see if they could chat with even more spirits on the other side. After 400 people witnessed their interactions, they were invited to host seances in New York City, where they became famous for promoting spiritualism as a religion. As an article in Smithsonian Magazine explains, the idea that one could communicate with spirits was hardly new. The Bible contained hundreds of references to angels administering to man, but the movement known as modern spiritualism sprang from several distinct revolutionary philosophies and characters. The ideas and practices of Franz Anton Mesmer, an 18th century Australian healer, had spread to the United States and by the 1840s held the country in thrall. Mesmer proposed that everything in the universe, including the human body, was governed by a magnetic fluid that could become imbalanced, causing illness. By waving his hands over a patient's body, he induced a mesmerized hypnotic state that allowed him to manipulate the magnetic force and restore health. Amateur mesmerists became a popular attraction at parties and in parlors, a few proving skillful enough to attract paying customers. Some who awakened from a mesmeric trance claimed to have experienced visions of spirits from another dimension. At the same time, the ideas of Emanuel Swedenborg, an 18th century Swedish philosopher and mystic, also surged in popularity. Swedenborg described an afterlife consisting of three heavens, three hells, and an interim destination, the world of the spirits, where everyone went immediately upon dying, and which was more or less similar to what they were accustomed to on Earth. Self-love drove one towards the varying degrees of hell. Love for others elevated one to the heavens. The Lord casts no one into hell, he wrote, but those who are there have deliberately cast themselves into it and keep themselves there. He claimed to have seen and talked with spirits on all of the planes. And the reason these ideas were so exciting to so many Americans was that unlike their Christian contemporaries, Americans who adopted spiritualism believed that they had a hand in their own salvation, and direct communication with those who had passed offered insight into the ultimate fate of their own souls. Yes, that's right. Prior to this time, the prevailing religious doctrine was that of John Calvin's doctrine of predestination which says that God is the one who decides the fate of each person in the afterlife. Some people were just predestined for eternal life, while others would be sent to eternal damnation. And there was no questioning the way that things worked in the world. Whatever happened was simply God's will, and us mere humans had no right or ability to question such an all-knowing being. So, Imagine the awe and wonder when spiritualism hit the scene in 1800s America, where, in the generations prior, this would have been considered witchcraft. Industrialization and urbanization were spreading into the rural areas, which meant cities were growing and work was evolving. Inventions and science were transforming how people looked at the world around them. Some even saw spiritualism as a religion of science. And as the Civil War began and hundreds of thousands of men died far from home, families who prior to that time would have always had wakes and funerals in their home to be with their loved ones in the days after their passing suddenly had no body to bury and no closure for their loss. 
spiritualism gave people a chance to speak to their loved one through a medium and hear that their loved one was at peace. In short, spiritualism was giving people the answers, or at least an illusion of the answers that Christianity couldn't or wouldn't do. So with that understanding, let's go back to Joseph Smith's childhood. Um, so his family uh, was, a, was very poor growing up, uh, even by the standards of the day. Um, like, it's pretty regularly reported that most of the Smith kids like, didn't have shoes and were just like kind of hick kids that <laughs> were in the, the, the podunks of New York. Um, but they got by um, through like uh, uh, farm work. Um, they um, started their own like um, cake and beer shop on the side of the road where like if you were traveling, you could just get refreshments and stuff. Um, they were they were hustlers. And part of that hustling was their work in the occult. They would get hired. Um, there were a lot of myths about buried magically sealed or concealed treasures at the time and um there were what we uh would call today con artists but back then they called themselves treasure diggers who would basically magically scry in front of you tell you that they're oh there's this lost mine of spanish silver just in your property um it's going to take some work to get it out but like me and my buddies we're all magically we got we know what we're doing so like just give us a couple of weeks. You pay us to do the work, the digging work and stuff. And then afterwards, when we find this Spanish mine, I mean, that that mine of silver is yours. So like paying us a few weeks to dig some holes isn't really a big deal, is it? And that's <laughs> that's how a lot of men made their money, uh, especially like the Smith family uh, who they they will play it down. Joseph in his journals says that he he was a treasure digger for something like a month and it was blown out of proportion. But again, by his own accounts earlier, he was a treasure digger for over a decade and was actively the one scrying, um, which is the same methods he later used to tra translate, in quotes, uh, the Book of Mormon. Um, we can get into the discovery of that a, a little later, but essentially he was acting as the um, the treasure digging group's virgin scryer, the person who would find the treasure and then tell you what had to be done magically to get it out. Um, and then there was a nice caveat that if anybody broke protocol at all for any reason, the treasure could be lost. And so, of course, always the treasure was lost. Nobody ever found any treasure, <laughs> um, which is why I call them con artists. <laughs> so did they have to stay ahead of their reputation? Because I imagine like how many times can you do that, you know, with a neighbor, with your neighbors in a small town before everyone kind of figures out what's going on? In, in most cases, not long. Um, part of the reason why you'll see with Mormon history that Joseph had to skip town every few years is because everybody eventually was on to him. And um, the few that were just like his zealous followers, the ones that didn't ask questions, those are the ones that stuck with him. And so by the end of this journey, he had he was surrounded by almost nothing but his zealous followers. And um, the dissenters were a lot easier to get rid of. Um, in To speak to that, um, <laughs> when he was still a teenager, um, he was actually tried and found guilty for conmanship, for conning one of his neighbors out of a bunch of money. And it wasn't actually the neighbor who who prosecuted him, it was the neighbor's sons and uncle and uncle. So like 
this dude's family saw Joseph milking him for everything is worth. And they put out an arrest warrant because they saw like, he's got my dad like in his hooks. My dad's never going to think this guy's anything but magic. Clearly, we all know he's not because he's never found anything and he's never going to. So they put an arrest warrant out for Joseph. Joseph, Joseph was arrested, um, tried and found guilty. And then uh, what they called leg bail. He basically escaped uh, and skipped town and just didn't have to face repercussions until he started the church some years later. And a bunch of his neighbors were like, hey, we remember you you don't get to go around calling yourself a prophet. And we also remember you never actually faced your, you never faced punishment for the things you were convicted for. So he was rearrested as a prophet and like retried for the things he was tried for several years earlier. Um, if that <laughs> helps contextualize, like a lot of his neighbors saw past it. Yeah. It seemed like there was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, kind of anti-Mormon writing and views by community members when, you know, he went from kind of being the the treasure digger to the prophet, maybe as a way to avoid some of the um, pressure he was getting to to find this treasure that was never found. (laughs) And you'll you'll get that a lot. The the church has done over the last 150 years has done a great job of creating this false dichotomy of history where everything is either Mormon or anti-Mormon. There's no like there's no line in between where it's just no, these are just people reporting on an obvious con man who and they're not anti-Mormon. Actually, a lot of the Mormons that uh, come out of the faith and then speak against Joseph aren't trying to destroy Mormonism. They're actually, a lot of them are trying to stay Mormon. They just think Joseph is a fallen prophet. And so they want Joseph out of the picture and they all want to stay Mormon. So actually it's, it's tricky reading a lot of these perspectives because some of these people are vehemently anti-Mormon and they're like, no, this was created by a con artist. Like again, like Scientology, (laughs) people looked at it the same way where you're like, we, why is this even a thing? This shouldn't be a thing. And then there were other people that were like, well, whatever, as long as everybody's a consenting adult, it's fine. But like, we should acknowledge that the dude who started it is a fallen prophet and an asshole. Um, that doesn't necessarily make them anti-Mormon, just in my opinion, makes them uh, nuanced. <laughs> sure, they were, I mean, they were the people closest to really what, seeing what was going on. And so at some point, mm-hmm. it is really interesting to me though, that in some way that they believed he brought this information through and they 100%, you know, were believers in that, but they just couldn't believe in him anymore. Um, and this this fit into the Christian um, mindset at the time. Like there are characters in the Bible, like King David, King Solomon. These are prophets of God who fell from grace because of their own human, like whatever. And a lot of these people who were like, hey, you are marrying teenage girls and like bigamously marrying other men's wives and stuff like that's not really prophet stuff, is it? Um, and like, I don't have a problem with Mormonism, but like, clearly you've fallen from grace. Um, and that was their, that there was a, there was room to believe prophets could do that. You know what I mean? You didn't have to believe prophets were perfect. That totally makes sense. So, I mean, going back to kind of the family in general, um, you know, what was their 
knowledge and kind of connection to herbal remedies, uh, plant medicines, herbal healing, that that type of thing? Like how how were they connected and, and what were they doing with regards to that? So a lot of, and this is where my work comes in because there, there's already been historians that have established the Smith family's occult connections. Um, the thing everyone kind of overlooks that I'm trying to really double down on is that all those uh, those books of occult learning that they clearly were, had access to and were using also have a lot of plant and botanical information in them, as well as here's how to make these plants into drugs that induce visions and like they're hand in hand. Um, I think in terms of skill sets, we know that uh, Lucy Mack, Joseph's mom, was a very gifted tarot reader um, and she liked reading palms. Um, her and uh, Porter Rockwell's mother apparently worked together for some time. Um, channeling was probably a type of activity they knew about, even though like spiritualism had not been created. There wasn't like the words for it, but like channeling dead ancestors or dead spirits is kind of what treasure digging involved. So there was a form of that going on. Joseph Sr., Joseph Jr.'s dad, uh, Joseph Sr. was a very gifted scryer and diviner. He used to use um, scrying rods, uh, what they would call rodsmen, where you take two rods and you like a lot of people use it to find water nowadays. Um, but he was apparently really talented with those. Quick side note. I don't want to assume everyone listening knows what all of these different terms mean. So I'll do my best to explain where I can. In this case, what Cody's saying is that Joseph Smith's parents were both practiced mediums adept at reading energy and communicating with spirits. They went about it in different ways, Lucy by reading tarot cards and palms, and Joe Sr. by scrying, which is looking into an object like a mirror or a stone to see visions or messages, and divining, which is in some way reading the future. So yeah, if they were alive today, you would probably be following them on Instagram. Um, they even, before Joseph was born, Lucy Mack and Joseph senior joined a kind of a Christian divining rodsman cult that was waiting for the end of the world. And while they were waiting, they were treasure digging. <laughs> um, they needed to find gold to pave the streets of heaven with. Uh, so they were all looking for gold. Um, and that seemed to have been their skill set. Um, Joseph, because of an illness when he was a child, I think it was a typhoid epidemic came through. Uh, developed a very bad leg infection, had to have leg surgery, which took several years to recover from. Um, and he had to be either, he was immobile. He had to be carried or like helped to move um, because he couldn't put weight on that leg yet. Um, and for his, most of his life, he walked with a noticeable limp or a cane um, because of that childhood industry, in injury. And so he had several older brothers, but like in a group that dug holes for a living, he wasn't much use. Um, so he very quickly as a young boy found himself in the position of scryer, where all you have to do is look at like scry and look to the other side to direct the treasure digging group, which he just happened to find himself in that position at like a very young preteen teenage boy. And he got very good at it very quickly and for a decade got to hone his skills as basically somebody who professionally directed men using occult language. So that when he eventually created the church and on demand was the mouthpiece of God, he was essentially doing the same thing he grew up doing. Um, 
And so his skill sets were kind of an adaptation of his, both his mother and father. Um, and in terms of like plant medicines and such, um, it was likely Lucy Mack that gave him a lot of that information, um, as well as some of his other like occult mentors or like people in his treasure digging group were sharing knowledge, of course. But I think by virtue of the fact that Lucy Mack had over a dozen children in the 1800s, and all of them survived out of childhood, as far as I can tell, um, infant mortality rates were, I think, over half. <laughs> so by virtue of the fact that this woman kept all of her children alive, at least into their late teens, says that um, she at least had a working, competent knowledge of, of how to utilize plants. Um, this is further highlighted by Joseph's wife, first wife, Emma, um, who wrote a detura, uh, wrote a recipe to her son for a, like a detura salve, which is actually not psychoactive. It, it, the way she um, makes it, it, the end result is what would be a lot like today, like a Vicks vapor rub. It's like a chest thing for, for congestion. Um, however, because Datura is so dangerous to use, and if you pick it at the wrong time, and it, in order to make a safe version of that salve, you have to know how to not make the not safe version. So like, we can kind of insinuate what they knew by what they did, even though what they did and what they talk about, like that salve is pretty innocuous. It bespeaks a greater knowledge. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, and so I think obviously like Emma had a lot of that. His mom, Lucy Mack had a lot of that. I think Joseph picked up enough of it that he, that with some mesmerism, with some scrying, with some, that, that he made his own kind of form of profiting. Yeah. And, and didn't Joseph, was it Joseph senior that had the, uh, short-lived ginseng, uh, business, which I guess could have also benefited from being able to dig holes on people's properties. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, he, him and Lucy Mack um, processed something up towards of like, I think it was $3,000 worth of ginseng at the time, which today is like 70 some thousand dollars worth of ginseng. It's a lot of ginseng. Um, through some bad business dealings that kind of fell apart. But again, by virtue of the fact that they identified American ginseng, processed it, crystallized it, and prepped seventy thousand dollars worth of it, you you knew how to handle plants. <laughs> and similarly, uh, a lot of um, historians have speculated that treasure digging activities were closely entwined with finding um, things like mandrake root, which has a whole occult um, method for extracting. Um, it's safely. And then once it's extracted safely, you have mandrake root, which you can make a lot of psychedelic things with. Um, and that may have been one of the treasures they were looking for. Um, it's, it, it's all kind of like tangential to each other. But like, again, if you're looking at this book of occult learning that teaches you how to scry for buried treasure and also talks about digging up mandrake root in a similar occult manner, you have to assume they at least read that section and were, had at one point looked for mandrake. You know what I mean? Yeah, honestly, that makes perfect sense to me. Before the days of the internet, healers and herbalists would have likely had large volumes on working with plants that would have covered the mystical as much as the practical. Maybe something like Culpepper's Herbal, which required you to know as much about astrology as you did about plants in order to even use the book. Like this description for the uses of mugwort. 
This is an herb of Venus, therefore maintains the parts of the body she rules, remedies the diseases of the parts that are under her signs, Taurus and Libra. Yep, the earth and the stars were tightly woven together in matters of healing, even in 1600s England when this book was written, at the height of witch trials and burnings. Now, the mandrake root definitely fell into the mystical category, especially when it came to its harvest. According to lore, mandrake shrinks at the approach of a person. Touching it can even be fatal. If uprooted, it shrieks and sweats blood, and whoever pulls it out dies in agony. It is safely harvested by digging around all but a small portion of the root, tying a dog to it and leaving. The dog strangles itself, pulling out the root in an attempt to follow its master. The death of the dog gives the mandrake root the power to protect against demons. The root is also believed to prophesy the future by shaking its head in answer to questions. Medieval witches were said to harvest the root at night beneath gallows trees, trees where unrepentant criminals, evil since birth, were supposed to have died. The root purportedly sprang up from the criminal's body drippings. According to Christian lore, the witch washed the root in wine and wrapped it in silk and velvet. She fed it with sacramental wafers stolen from a church during communion. I mean, this kind of folklore was obviously an attempt by the powers that be in this time to connect the healing plant work of women to the devil and scare off the common people from visiting the women in their villages who would have always prepared plant remedies and medicines and instead send them to the priest to be healed. But if you fast forward to the rustic frontier of America in the early 1800s, these were all plants that were handy to have in your medicine cabinet for one reason or another whether that reason was healing work or witchcraft. Really, I was just curious to know where Joseph had learned all of this plant knowledge. It was a, a lot of it was familial. It was a lot of his like immediate family that was teaching him this and he was doing it professionally. Um, there is one other character worth mentioning named Lumen Walters, who was kind of a traveling occultist that had been through France and England, called himself a doctor um, may have joined Mormonism for a short time afterwards, but was clearly influential in the early days of, of Mormonism um, or pre-Mormonism and like the starting of the church. Um, there's a scene where like Joseph's old um, money digging associates when he's starting the church are coming after him because they're like, hey, we found we heard you found this gold book and like we all work together. And like, if you found treasure, we own a part of that. And there's this like weird wizard battle that ensues where they're scrying each at each other for the hidden location of this gold book. And Lumen Walters, Joseph's old mentor, is one of those guys on the other side being like, hey, you owe us, man. Um, and it and then a bunch of those guys who are looking for the gold Bible and like staged this like wizard battle eventually did join Mormonism. Um, and some of those men's daughters became Joseph's polygamous wives. <laughs> so it's 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 interesting how many people may have been his mentor, you know, um, Lumen's just one of those. But he after um, the whole Mormon thing, he whether or not he joined Mormonism, he did leave uh, the Ohio area, moved back to New York and he opened up a tincture emporium, which at the time was about as close to a pharmacy as you could get. Um, and so if if that if one of Joseph's old teachers eventually opened a pharmacy using <laughs> plant and, and occult magic, 
Um, I would hazard a guess that Joseph picked up a, a, even a little bit of that. So here we are. Joe Smith Jr., a.k.a. the founder of the Mormon Church, along with his father, brothers, and a small group of friends, has spent a decade or so earning his keep as a bit of a hustler while practicing his skills as a medium and persuasive speaker and presenter, convincing neighbors that they should be paid to dig for treasure on their land. He has a better than decent understanding of plants, trees, and fungi, and knows how to make medicine with them. And then he runs into a bit of trouble, getting arrested and then convicted for running a long-term scam on a neighbor where he's getting room and board and payment in exchange for work on the farm that he never really does, not to mention finding buried treasure for this gentleman that is never found. It's just after he flees his sentencing to a labor camp that he suddenly begins calling himself a prophet. So here's the shortest, most succinct version of events I can give you about what happens in that period of time. On September 22nd, 1823, on a hill near his home in Manchester, New York, the angel Moroni directed Joseph to a buried stone box filled with golden plates. He said that the angel prevented him from taking the plates that day, but instructed him to return to the same location one year later. He returned to that site every year, but it wasn't until September 1827 that he actually recovered the plates on his fourth annual attempt to retrieve them. He returned home with the heavy object wrapped in a frock, which he then put in a box. He allowed others to lift the box, but said that the angel had forbidden him to show the plates to anyone until they had been translated from their original Reformed Egyptian language. Now, if you want to know a lot more of the historical accounts and details on this situation and whether or not these plates may or may not have ever existed, you can go read Cody's book. He's done some real in-depth research on this topic. That being said, Joseph then dictated the text of the plates while a scribe wrote down the words, which would later become the Book of Mormon. In order to translate these plates from Egyptian to English, he would pull a hat down over his eyes and look into two seer stones fastened together like a large pair of eyeglasses. Therefore, he was not looking at the plates while translating. He was, I guess you could say, channeling the information clairvoyantly and dictating the details to be written down by a scribe. After the translation was complete, Joseph said that he returned the plates to the angel Moroni, so nobody other than him ever saw them. Well, I take that back. He did round up a handful of early church members, including his father, brothers, brother-in-law, and a bunch of the members of the Whitmer family to swear testimonies that they saw the plates. But then in the handful of years after the book was written, all of the Whitmers either died or became estranged from the church, resulting in their eventual excommunication, and, of course, Joseph and his family were running and making a full-time living from his newfound profession as a prophet of God. I asked Cody to share a bit more about these early days when Joseph was being visited by the angel Moroni and transcribing the golden plates. During his teenage years, like when he was talking to Moroni the angel, originally he described it in more like treasure digging context. It wasn't an angel at first, it was a spirit. The spirit was guarding a treasure. His his story kind of evolved over time. Um, and so it's really hard to parse out any of it. And I 
tend to not really speculate too hard on the truth or validity of his his early visions. Um, it's when he starts the church and like um, presents a vision for the, what they call the three witnesses or the eight witnesses. Um, that's one of the first times I can pinpoint where he gets a small group together and gets them to share a visionary state, likely about an hour after a sacrament session where he gave them something. Um, and all of these men more or less share the same vision over a period of time. Ah, uh, yes, there it is. The blueprint for what's about to become the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Joseph calls a group of men together who he needs to testify that they saw these gold plates. They pray, they take the sacrament, and they're guided through a visionary experience. I mean, what are the odds that Joseph can get a group of a dozen or so people to have the same vision at the same time? Not all that likely, as it turns out. At least, not without a little help. The aforementioned hypnotism and drugs. But... What kind of drugs? So a big mistake I think people make when they're speculating about like drugs in history is every, a lot of people try and find a single answer solution. Um, my biggest problem with like Dr. Bexed's paper when I first read it was like he was all about Amanita and Datura. And I was like, of course, he would use way more than that. And it was seasonal. And like he didn't always have access to that. Um, although he could like I, now I don't discount that he could have. And Datura was probably one of his big his big uh, uh, herbs. Um, I think the biggest thing that decided what he was using in his wine was seasonal availability, uh, geographical availability, because he kept moving towns. So like at, when you move towns, you got to figure out like, OK, what grows locally here? Does anyone have a garden that has these herbs in it? Um, I do think if you're looking for like a grouping of plants that were most likely the ones he was using most of the time, um, they would be what would be called the hexing or witches herbs. Um, that's kind of largely Datura, Bell, uh, Belladonna, um, uh, Hemlock, Henbane. Uh, there's everybody has like their their own grouping of it, but generally there's about five of them. And then um, mushrooms, of course. Uh, but again, very seasonally, probably only twice a year he would have had access to them if he knew how to find them. Uh, but coincidentally the mid 1800s are about when mycology was becoming a thing. And so like people were starting to identify and taxonomically uh, uh, categorize mushrooms. Um, and a lot of the occultists and alchemists at the time already knew what psychedelic mushrooms were. Um, so that's, that's a possibility. I, I hate to try and pin anything down. Cause like until we get Joseph's secret black uh, drug book or like <laughs> any of the general authorities, like secret diary entry, diary entries come out and say like, we were totally harvesting to tour. It's, it's hard to say. Um, but speaking to um, uh, Lucy Max, um, high um, success with having children at the time, uh, or ergot was used as a utero constrictive agent uh, during childbirth. Um, and women who used it, like midwives who used ergot, knew what the off-label side effects were. <laughs> so they knew, I'm going to give this to you because I need, I need everything. I, I need you to have this baby safely. I know if I give you too much, you're going to have visions. And I know if I give you way too much, you could, there's, there's serious consequences. So these women really knew how to use 
ergot safely, uh, which is surprising because it's a very, very dangerous uh, plant to or fungi to use. Um, but I think that's another likely candidate that we just don't really have the, the ability to validate whether or not that was really being used. But um, given the prevalence of things like that in German folklore and German medicine and the German ties to Joseph's family, probably another likely one. Yeah, and you know what, I was thinking about uh, this a little bit this morning too, and just had this like thought pop into my head that like, of course they wouldn't just use one thing that anyone could find in their garden, right? Because then what, how would that make what they were doing special? Like there was so much ego, I think, wrapped up <laughs> in yes. like, what Joseph Smith was doing that like, of course he would have had his own special brew that was just his, that he had perfected after maybe trying a little of this and a little of that. And so I think you're right between seasonal availability, which, you know, if they had enough of something and could dry it, it maybe they would have had it all year, but, um, but still that's like, Oh, hopefully we had a good mushroom flush if we're talking about. Well, and that also, I think that also accounts for why you only see a couple of times, like 500 people get hopped up on Sacramento wine. It takes a lot of material to get that many people high. And so, of course, like um, we can get into the school of the prophets, but in the early days, they started the sacrament ceremonies. They had to kind of like put a censorship on them because it was leaking what they were doing. And so now it was kind of only for the, the Mormon hierarchy. And then it slowly started getting more and more restricted. Um, and until there were th there were things like the temple ceremony where they were like, OK, all of you are going to have visions now. Um, those are very few. And I think it's because it took so much material to actually do that. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I think, you know, it also kind of follows if you really look at, you know, entheogen use through just the dawn of time, right? And and religion is that, you know, it was something that everybody did. And then as time went by and the churches became more formalized and religion became, you know, then it gets the priestly class only and oh, very, mm -hmm. you know, and, and at some point is kind of gets taken out altogether that there is a medium that is causing these visions, right? That it's not just yeah. you're, you're going and uh, laying down in a special room and God comes and talks to you like that. There's, there's something that causes this to happen for most people. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's other, um, things to consider as well. Like, uh, uh, I don't want to say his, um, John C. Bennett, I believe his name was one of Joseph's general authorities. I'll have to, <laughs> I, I'm, I think it's John C. Bennett. Um, one of Joseph's, uh, higher authorities, uh, in his inner circle towards the end of uh, everything in like, um, Illinois. Um, this man was a, an obstetrician uh, he delivered babies. He was also a big part of Joseph's polygamy. Um, and we have several quotes from him essentially explaining why Joseph's polygamous unions didn't result in children. Um, because he says, I have a thing that can, he's trying to coerce another woman into marrying him. And he tells her, I have a potion that can keep you from having babies. The same potion administered correctly can also kill your husband if you want me to, <laughs> which in terms of occultism, you generally have if you if you have a certain kind of magical concoction, you can like one dose is a visionary dose. Two doses is like a purge dose where you're you're having visions, but you're also purging like an ayahuasca. 
And then like a third dose would be an overdose and you run the risk of dying. Um, the purge dose can also be used as an abortive agent. Um, so when he says things like that, he's basically showing his cards and being like, I'm kind of a magic doctor and I can make a potion that can get rid of your baby and also get rid of your husband too. It's the same potion, just different doses. So, whoa, yeah, that's heavy. And to be honest, I just don't have the time in this podcast to get into the polygamy in any kind of depth, other than to say that this is the kind of physical and energetic legacy that I think has continued in the church to this day on a variety of levels. Cody's explanation about how it all got started more or less echoes Carrie Koss's explanation in last week's episode about how Joseph was incredibly driven by his sexuality and eventually just turned it into a religious thing once his wife caught him and the other men in the church started coming after him for harassing their wives, trying to convince them to also marry him. He had kind of a weird MO when it came to finding wives. Uh, he usually liked uh, young girls that worked in his house, uh, like young teenage girls. Um, and then he would approach them with like a secret revelation, like, hey, God told me about this secret thing that like only you and I know about. Um, and it's it's weird. I don't really know if I want to do it, but like he says we should get married. And then like he would have one of his friend authority hire, guys in his hierarchy act as his wingman and basically badger this poor girl until like, hey, you know, like this is a secret, sacred thing. And like, I know it's weird, but like we have to do our part and not ever we don't always understand God's plan and blah, 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 blah. And in some cases, they even got the family's permission to be like, hey, this is a secret revelation for your family only. The prophet needs to marry your daughter for celestial reasons. And like. I think it was pretty unambiguous what was going on until he got caught. And then all the celestial marriage came out where it's like, oh, this is celestial. This has to, I'm not having sex with anybody even though Emma, his first wife, found him and one of his teenage maids rolling around in the hay. Like, uh, <laughs> I yeah, think that I was an excuse he came up with later to try and cover his tracks. So yeah, that was also going on in the early days of the church. But all right, so back to mesmerism and plant medicines. Because at this point, Joseph has the beginnings of a church. He's got a handful of early followers, even if they are his family members and treasure digging buddies, what seems to be a reliable recipe for some kind of psychedelic sacrament, his hot off the presses Book of Mormon, and a whole lot of charisma and charm. So how did he go about recruiting more people to the church? Um, that's honestly very conventional. It's a lot like every other religion at the time. Um Actually, some of the frustration they had in the early days of the church were that people weren't buying the Book of Mormon because it was just like everything else. And like they weren't listening to us. Um, and I think the thing that separated them was the sacrament sessions. Um, <laughs> you have a bunch of people who grew up around Pentecostalism. They grew up around this kind of radical Christianity. So like you rolling around on the floor isn't going to convince me of anything. Like, can you give me a vision? Like, are you an actual prophet? And the fact that Joseph and a lot of his hierarchy could take you into a room and give you the sacrament and, you know, a day later you emerge kind of wide eyed and like, oh, my God, it's real. And yeah, I'll read your book. OK, I'll read your book. You want my money? All my money. And I think that was his biggest <laughs> success was um, for he was delivering an experience to people that 
that they wanted and they were pursuing most of their lives. Whether or not he did that nefariously, they didn't really care about. They just, at the time, knew that I've, I've found the guy that has the answers, apparently, and he seems to have the power of a prophet. You know what I mean? And I think that's where a lot of Joseph's success was. Aside from the fact that he was very charismatic, he was a good-looking, younger guy. He was kind of, he kind of had like a, um, a backwoods twang as an accent. So he kind of, he was like one of the people's people. He was very charming. He was very easy to get along with. He didn't look like, uh, uh, you know, a learned scholar, which was kind of his like, well, look at the guy. He's kind of a country bumpkin. How could he have translated that entire book? And like, he had this whole mystique about him, um, which I, th- I think kind of helped his, his, his uh, ploy as well. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, if you're offering to people that, you know, you're going to have a direct experience with God and then you do, <laughs> like, I think you're right. Like, okay, fine. I'll give you all my money. You know, no mm-hmm. big deal. <laughs> and if, and this is like, this is, you again, have to remember that like they didn't go through the 1960s, not at, while occultists and a select group of people were very learned about a lot of these things, their average Joe was just like, I'm a farmer. I, I go to church every Sunday and then you go to church one Sunday and you see God, you know what I mean? And you're just like, I don't care. I don't care what, I don't care if it was in the sacrament. I don't care if it was in the air, whatever you did, like keep it coming. Um, I think was the big sell point. Yeah. And I mean, were there other promises that he was making to converts in those early days or was that, you know, really what what the promise was you you'll have a direct experience with god oh uh, there's definitely some more promises uh uh, the reason they call themselves the latter-day saints is because like mormonism is an apocalyptic religion they like jesus is going to be here any second now and um i think and especially in like the early days of mormonism joseph believed jesus was going to come that generation like, and he was telling everybody this. And so another big sell point was like, yo, when Jesus comes, you're going to have a, a high point in the kingdom of heaven. Cause you're on the right side. We're the guys with the truth and all the truth and nothing but the truth. So like when Jesus comes, you're in the in circle. Um, and if you're in my inner inner circle, you're going to have a great place in the, um, the thousand year reign of Jesus when he comes. And this is the state we found all of those confused Mormon spirits in at the cemetery in Utah. They were promised and they believed that Jesus was coming back for them any day now, and they would be elevated to the highest level of heaven, and that the dead would be lifted from their graves for eternal life with their heavenly families. So there they were, hanging out at their graves, just waiting. Although by many accounts, you might say that while they were alive, these early Mormon converts were very much trying to hurry the process along. Um, And they were so by the act of creating what they called Zion or like God's city on earth, they were kind of expediting that process. So there was even in that first generation of Mormonism and since afterward, afterwards, honestly, but really, especially in that first generation, they were actively trying to bring on the apocalypse and a lot of their acts as Mormons or in like trying to establish God's church was so that Jesus would come sooner. Like what um, kind of things? Uh, like the creation of the temple, um, there's a bunch of, um, so like, there's a bunch of scenes where Joseph will 
have a revelation and be like, oh, this is one of the signs. This is one of the signs that means he's just about to come, guys. Um, we're almost there. And he conveniently used those moments when everybody was kind of like, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> I don't know if Joseph really knows what he's talking about. Um, he had a good good knack for when the flock was going astray. And he, <laughs> he had a good way of uh, bringing them all back in. He's like, whoa, 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 guys, you remember Jesus is coming. You got to Like, here's one of those signs. Got to come back. So time passes. Despite a lot of heavy opposition by non-Mormon community members, a variety of criminal charges, and some time on the run, Joseph and his 2,000 followers managed to construct the first temple in Kirtland, Ohio. And it's generally well accepted that Mormon temple ceremonies were patterned after Masonic lodge ceremonies, as we discussed a bit last week. So how exactly did that happen? So this is where... Things, again, get a little tricky and murky. Um, Joseph, on the books, technically, did not become a Mason until the 1840s when they arrived in Nauvoo or when there was a Nauvoo chapter of Freemasons that was was formed among the Mormons. And Joseph became, um, he he rose to the rank of Master Mason in, I think, like two days, um, which is, that takes years to do. I, given the fact that his bro- there's some ties to masonry before Joseph was even born. His older brother, Hiram, um, is named after the patriarch of Masonic legend. Um, Hiram Abiff is the first ma- mason that worked on the Temple of Solomon and was killed for not divulging his secrets. And so part of Masonic initiation rituals is to recreate this death of Hiram Abiff. Joseph's brother is named Hiram. <laughs> that's, that's coincidental, is it not? Um, also coincidental is um, one of the first exposés written on Masonic initiation rites, written by a guy named Morgan. Can't remember his name. Uh, he published one of the first exposés on on masonry. Uh, published all of their initiation rites essentially, and then was quote disappeared. <laughs> um, he was. He, he apparently was mugged on the road and killed, but like everyone knows that the Masons killed him because he did this. Um, and coincidentally, Joseph married his widow, Morgan's widow, uh, married her later, and she became one of Joseph's polygamous wives before he became a Mason. So like Joseph's tie to Masonry and especially the Smith's family, the Smith family's tie to Masonry is probably very deep and a lot longer than we give credit for. And by virtue of the fact that Joseph rose to the rank of Master Mason in two days um, means that he knew all of the stuff. So like if you if you want to join Masonry and you know all the initiation signs, you know, the history, you know, all the handshakes and the passwords and all like. You can do that, you just have to know everything already. Um, And I think that's why he rose so quickly. Um, Similar uh, to Masonic initiation. or similar to Mormon initiation, Masonic initiation, um, there's a lot of evidence for early drug use during like the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, um, up until about the 18th century. What probably stopped Masons from doing that was there was a satanic panic of the 1800s where like the the Masons were the child-eating Satan. Like in the 80s, it was D&D kids (laughs) were the ones that were going to kill everyone and eat your babies. In the 1880s, the Satan epidemic was all oh, the Masons. They're going to take over the government and kill all your children. And um, that's kind of what put, I think put a kibosh on all the, the, the 
psychedelic initiations among the, the Masons. Um, if you're interested in that angle, I would highly recommend a book by P.D. Newman. Um, he has several books out that all deal with like um, the occult and drugs, specifically Masonic initiation and their use of um, all sorts of drugs. Um, well, so tell us, and because he obviously was so well versed in, you know, Masonic tradition, what are some of the um, similarities between Masonic initiation and, you know, Mormon temple rites? Um, this is not admittedly my area of expertise, um, but kind of briefly, um, the temple garments, uh, the apron that you wear in the temple, a lot of the, the initiation garments are very, very similar, especially the early ones. We've kind of slowly evolved the Mormon temple garments, but especially the very first ones are almost page for page a plagiarism of Masonic initiation. Um, and the reason for that is, is, I say plagiarism, but the reason for those similarities is because both Masonry and Mormonism we're trying to recreate uh, the initiation ceremonies that happened in Eleusis um, or, or, or um, Solomon's temple or what have you. Um, they were both trying to kind of recreate the same ancient esoteric rituals. And so that's why I think there are so many commonalities aside from the fact that Joseph created his after he'd been influenced by the Masonic ones. But um, they were both trying to kind of recreate the same stuff, if, if that helps. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, the Mormon temple experience, from what I understand, is supposed to be really walking you kind of step by step through ascension to heaven, right? But while you're still on earth and while you're still alive. So um, it's interesting because in doing my research, I came across, you know, lots of ex-Mormons who really just shared how underwhelming the temple experience was after, you know, years of buildup. So, you know, do you think based on your own experience with the temple and whatnot, like how, um, how different would it have been if you were under the influence of an entheogenic substance while in the temple? Um, well, I can say aside from psychedelic substances, the early Mormon temple rituals, um, based on the comparative studies I've done of like what they do then versus what they did today, they do today. Um, the early Mormon temple rituals were very theatrical and look like a, they look like a lot of fun. Honestly, <laughs> there's a guy that comes in dressed as the devil and he's writhing around on the floor, tempting you. And there's like it's crazy and it's good theater. It looks like fun. <laughs> I can see why people are underwhelmed today. And then if you throw psychedelics in on top of that, it's just like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Um, uh, <laughs> so I can't um, and I never went through the, the modern um, higher levels of the temple. So I, I can't really speak to that. I only went to the temple while I was uh, 12 to 17 uh, ish, where they let you in like the lower levels of the temple. Um, I've just read about them. Um, I can see why people are underwhelmed today because like, um, so for example, you have in the, in the beginning, you have like a guy dressed as Satan rolling around on the floor. 
you're stripped naked in front of a bunch of strangers. There's a guy that touches your balls. That's putting oil at weird points, of your body. They like the whole experience is psychedelic <laughs> on top of the fact that you're likely being given psychedelics. Um, Versus today where you have this very strange garb where you're like, you're kind of naked on the sides, but not totally. And there's, yes, a stranger's touchy. It's more awkward than like a pageant. Like it used to be a big thing. And now it's just kind of like this awkward bureaucratic business interaction where here's the handshake. Here's the secret word. Here's your secret name. Now you get to go to heaven. And everyone's like, okay, oh, that's it. Okay. Whereas like in the 1800s, you were just like, yeah, oh my God, there's no Satan. No. And you like had, you had this whole thing where you had to interact and talk with Satan and it was all staged and it's good theater. I, I think that's probably the biggest thing I could see, but again, I never went through that. So. Yeah. That sounds like quite the wild ride in 1800s rural America. I mean, who would want to be home knitting by the fire in the evening when you could go to church? And by going to church, I mean going on a psychedelic journey with your friends and family while experiencing an escape from the devil's clutches to ascend to heaven. In retrospect, it actually sounds a bit like my own psychedelic journey, climbing out of the pit of snakes in Salt Lake City to reach the top of the Wasatch Mountains. I really hope that 1800s me got to have that experience. Actually, I'm pretty sure I did on at least some level because I've had dreams that are eerily similar to Cody's description, including standing naked in a tub while being anointed. But let's go back to the dedication of the temple in Kirtland, because that seems to be the psychedelic visionary crescendo of the early church years. But in Kirtland, uh, so they had like the temple dedication where that's where all the psychedelic stuff is. They had like a big main room of the temple. And then there were different levels of the temple that you could go to, to perform different ceremonies. And basically the dedication ceremony of the temple was to be like, this temple's open and we're consecrating it to God. And now we get to do all the secret rituals and stuff. Even though Joseph and his hierarchy had been doing secret rituals in the completed temple for months before the dedication. Um, uh, but the dedication essentially was just bringing in some 500 people who were there and had helped build it, um, consecrating it for uh, use for the Lord, and then emptying a barrel of psychedelic wine into these parishioners. And then about an hour later, they all, while the hierarchy is delivering speeches and prophecies and tongues and doing backflips and vomiting into the pews, like everyone's, it, it got crazy real quick. Um but it was it was kind of just like uh, more or less a hopped up normal session of church. They didn't really do any um, special ceremonies. That was more for Joseph's hierarchy in private months before who had been doing like the anointing rituals where they bathed each other in likely psychedelic oils and stuff. Yeah, we didn't talk about the anointing very much or at all, really. Um, and I think that's a, a piece that has survived in the church today, although not in nowhere in the same way, uh, maybe than it was in the early, but what, what was the, um, I guess the process or the point or the idea around the anointing? Um, so the, um, I'm not entirely sure what, uh, I see it as just another vehicle for them to be using psychedelics. Um, <laughs> it's, there's a bunch of things that kind of overlap 
where Joseph is saying this is a ritual that was performed by Christ that um, kind of gives you special access or dispensation to other kingdoms or other things in heaven. Um, you can use that to, to explain it, but I think it, by and large, he, it, this is just another vehicle that I want to try out. <laughs> and um, maybe he hadn't had access to uh, what they called witches ointments or flying ointments. But again, that's a thing that is talked about all, all the time in these grimoires. Very few recipes actually remain, which is probably why he may never have tried them. And then finally, when he got to Kirtland and he met somebody that knew how to make them and he was like, oh, let's, let's incorporate this. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. So the Kirtland dedication then kind of had all kinds of flavors of, you know, mm -hmm. the wine. And, and I see the incorporation of the anointing oils. is just like, that's a new toy he got to play with. And he found a, he found a spot in the ceremony to put it, but and I am lives a on. pessimist, I think. <laughs> it lives on and continues at least in some, some way. Now it's the consecrated olive oil or <laughs> and similarly uh you were talking about the temple rituals when you um one of the things that changed when brigham took over is there was a point in the upper part of the temple where you you got your special name you got your handshakes and the passwords and everything and then you were supposed to eat something and have an experience um when brigham took over he we don't know what you ate i there's no that's been thoroughly censored and and taken out of church history all I can dig up so far is that he, whatever it used to be, Brigham replaced it with raisins or grapes. Um, and you just ate raisins or grapes after that. But again, you have to take like anytime somebody's eating something, anytime anybody's rubbing oil on each other, you have to like, okay, there's, there's, that could be something. It may not be anything, but. There could be something there, something deeper. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, really kind of coming to the end of Joseph's life, what, you know, there was a lot of kind of chaos after, um, after he was killed and obviously lots of factions of uh, members went in a lot of different directions, but it seemed like primarily the visionary experiences ended or significantly declined after his death. So, I mean, what what do you attribute that to if, in fact, the leadership knew that's what had been going on and had been participating in it up until that point? Um, see, and again, I, I think at that point, a lot of people did see Joseph as a fallen prophet. So you get you see everybody's splinter group in kind of their own way. So Brigham famously brought everybody to Utah. Um, there were also several other prospective sites that they were looking at for Zion. Uh, one was in Mexico, one was in, um, I think San Francisco was even considered being considered at the time. Um, and there was another one in Beaver Island. Uh, but essentially when they, when they schismed, you can see like the Strangites who followed this guy Strang, who said that Joseph gave him a secret revelation that he was going to be in charge next. He didn't, it was all plagiarized. Um, he took a huge group of Mormons down to this area in Beaver beaver island or beaver creek island i can't remember um but they were they were still doing drugs and they were still using a lot of joseph's old tricks of like getting people to dress in angel drag and go up on a mountain and pretend to talk to you and they would paint themselves in phosphorus it was again a lot of pageantry good theater they were using drugs to kind of amplify that um but much like joseph um this dude went a little power hungry and was murdered at the hands of his parishioners 
I think, um, I think that like Brigham was a businessman. He was a, 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 a very keen businessman. And I think the way he saw the church surviving was like a businessman would like, we need to get rid of all the radical stuff. We need it. We need to be this thing that looks like he was a good PR guy. So like we need to look like these kind of Mormons, even though, like you said, in Utah, the wine industry was booming, but like we're Mormons, we don't drink, we, but we can make it and send it to you guys. And it was like, there was a very definitive shift in like how the church was operated and how it was presented to the public. Um, and, and similar, a lot of those, those other offshoots, I haven't really been able to follow because there were too many of them. Um, but the large body of the LDS that went with Brigham, he flat out burned books and recensored history. So it was very easy for him to take a spin and, and, and make Mormonism, whatever he wanted. Um, everything else that is kind of blanketed under FLDS or, or fundamental ladder Mormonism, um, it's kind of hard to parse out because there's so many versions of it. Um, it is interesting that like Emma, Emma Smith, uh, Joseph's first wife, because she was in, Joseph had said for years that his first son would be the person to take over the church. Um, when he died, his son was still a kid. And so obviously like someone was going to have to take over. And for a lot of the mafia stuff that was happening in the Mormonism at the time, Emma very rightly was in fear of her life because she's like, somebody just needs to kill me and this kid and they can take over the church. So she fled with some of her loyal followers to another area. And like a lot of the FLDS stuff kind of came out of that. Um, and that's why they still kind of uh, adhere to the idea that Mormonism should be a hierarchy. Um, that's where you get into the weird stuff like Warren Jeffs and everything. Um, but it's a weird coincidence where, again, I think Emma kind of also saw that we need to get rid of some of the radical stuff. And so she, perhaps toned down some of the other things because, um, Joseph's son, um, doesn't seem to be aware of any of the drug stuff. He grew up outside of Joseph's world. He grew up out after all this schism stuff happened. And he grew up in a, a form of Mormonism that was kind of more focused on the polygamy than anything. Um, and so it's even more weird that his son, Joseph's grandson, um, Frederick M. Smith, who was running around in the early 1900s, was one of the first psychologists that was trained at, I think, Columbia. He was one of the first like guys that was a certified psychologist. He, on his own, discovered peyote and was like, oh, my God, we should be incorporating this into Mormonism. This is a great tool. Um, and he was kind of quietly tolerated by his local LDS people because he was a prophet. He was a prophet of the FLDS church. So you have a sitting Mormon prophet who is a certified psychologist, really into peyote, and he's writing about it. It's amazing. But he seems to be completely ignorant of the fact that the early days of what they used to do, he doesn't write about it like there's any connection. Like he discovered this on his own, which says to me that that schism kind of like shut that out the same way that Brigham did. Um, I don't know if that helps answer your question, but that's, there's, <laughs> there's so many different ways this happened. And consequently, they did find drugs again, but later, and then everyone quietly ignored him. And so it never really became a thing until late. It's, uh, 
it's a hard question to answer. <laughs> that makes sense. But it does. I mean, in, for one reason or another, it kind of that visionary time really kind of ends. And what you have by the time the group is in Utah and there's, you know, massive immigration coming from Europe, um, there is kind of that question of, of what, what was the appeal if this visionary piece was missing, right? That was so important in the early days. And obviously, you know, the promise of land and starting a new life and doing all of those things was, you know, can't be understated. But um, I wonder how much people were influenced by those who had had visionary experiences who were probably still around and, and in the church. Well, that that was definitely happening. Um, a few of the people that made it to Salt Lake um, kind of were quietly operating, not not their own little sect of Mormonism, but like Brigham kind of seems to have tolerated like William Clayton was Joseph's private secretary. Um, he was the guy that hid a lot of the stuff that we don't we didn't know about until like 100 years later, like Joseph's kind of weird Batman villain plan to take over the US with an army of Native Americans, like very weird, but like he was the guy that hid all that. So the likelihood that he hid other stuff is very high. Um, it is interesting that when he went to Utah with Brigham, Brigham seems to have like quietly tolerated his weird esotericism because like Clayton immediately starts an alchemical society. Um, and and starts like operating this, this uh, alchemical lab with a few of his friends. And this alchemical society lasted until the 1880s, as far as I can tell. Um, so there are quiet groups of Mormonism still doing this very, very quietly and privately. And how much of that incorporates drugs, who knows? But it was likely the guys that you know, came with Joseph from Joseph that helped translate that and helped it survive in whatever form that it did. Um, there were also in Utah um, kind of private speakeasy pharmacies uh, that, that were designated by an all-seeing eye, and it said holiness to the Lord. And as long as you knew the passcodes and stuff, you could essentially gain access to illicit materials in Utah that were, you know, wine. If you wanted to buy a barrel of wine that is not okay for you to drink, but we made it, so it's wink, wink, kind of okay. Um, if you go to the right place and know who to talk to, you can get a barrel of wine. Um, and as long as you're not causing a problem, as long as we don't have to sanction you for anything, as long as you're doing it privately in your own home with your own stuff, we don't care. Seems to have been largely the attitude, at least for a little while in Utah. So Solomon's Temple, the Eleusinian Mysteries, early Christianity, and the Masons were all using entheogenic plant medicines of one kind or another to elicit life-changing visionary experiences. And it sure seems like Joseph Smith wanted to pattern Mormonism on the same foundation. To bring people into a state of mind where they could have a personal experience with God and receive direct revelations for themselves. Which in some ways is quite admirable at that point in the history of Christianity. Except it didn't seem to last very long. To begin with, it starts to get very difficult to be the prophet of a church when everyone can, in effect, be their own prophet. What would you need Joseph Smith for if you can have your own revelations about how to live your life and have a relationship with Jesus? And in those early days, part of how Joseph and his family paid the bills is that he shared a revelation that all members of the church should hand over all their money, property, and belongings to him, or rather, the church, and that the church would redistribute it as needed. 
Now, that didn't seem to last too long and created a lot of infighting, as you might imagine. But Joseph needed people to need him. And at least until he had a critical mass of members who could share their testimony about their visionary experiences to other prospective members, he needed the sacramental wine that offered an altered state of consciousness during his church services. Once people were in that state, it's not all that difficult to lead them in the experience he wanted them to have. Today, we would say that there is a massive issue of consent and ethics being violated here. And although people may have not initially been as concerned in those days about whether there was or was not something in the wine that was giving them these experiences, they also wouldn't have known that they were being purposely duped in order to convince them to convert to this new religion and hand over their worldly possessions. Or were they? I mean, depending on what they were taking and how much, they probably were seeking God and learning the secrets of the universe. And yet this experience still came at the expense of turning over their free will and eternal salvation to an earthly church, not to a divine power. It's complicated, right? And what were my ancestors told or promised in Europe a decade or so later when their manpower was needed to help colonize the American West? We'll talk about that more in future episodes, but next week we'll be leaving the Mormons behind and going back way back to early Scandinavia. Thanks to researcher and historian Cody Nikoni for lending so much insight on today's episode about the founding of the church and its psychedelic origins. You can hear more of his research on his podcast called Mormons and Drugs, or read his book, The Psychedelic History of Mormonism, Magic, and Drugs. Both can be found at mormonsanddrugs.com or at the link in the show notes. I'm also sharing the full version of my conversation with Cody over on my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash following hawks. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here on the earth at this moment in time. And I'll see you back here next Tuesday. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.